Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello, Baha'i Blog and Baha'i Blogcast. This is me, your host, Rain Wilson. I am an actor and a Baha'i and a podcast host, my newest hat I'm putting on. And I'm thrilled to be sitting down with two of my favorite human beings in the universe, Mary Darling and Clark Donnelly, who are both extraordinary producers, television producers, writers, directors from Canada. Don't hold that against them. But here they are with me. We're sitting down in Toronto to have a little discussion. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming on the uh, the old podcast. We're so happy to be here. We're honored to be yeah, here. Yeah, honored. To I have so many questions to uh, ask you guys, but uh, I first got to know of you by hearing about this extraordinary TV show that ran for how many seasons? Six. Six seasons. Six seasons of um, Little Mosque on the Prairie, the very first kind of Muslim-centric comedy um, that did so much to uh, kind of bring healing and understanding uh, to the Muslim community, especially here in Canada, where it was a big hit comedy show. I heard about that show. I saw several of the episodes. It was just excellent writing and really sharp comedy and satire. And it was so great to hear that it was a couple of Baha'is out there producing a TV show that promoted kind of understanding and warmth and love and the humanity of Muslim North Americans. So let's start with that. How did that project come about? Well, we were uh, at a film festival um, having terrible luck in the pitches that we had. Uh, it was in Banff, Alberta, actually. And uh, we were approached by a young Muslim woman who was kind of a newbie to the industry. She'd done a documentary called Me in the Mosque, but she was a hijabi-wearing woman, wonderful woman named Zarka Nawaz, very funny and uh, so another friend of ours, actually, uh, I think he had heard her pitch and he said, you know, you need to talk to Clark and Mary because he knows that whenever he sits with us, all we want to talk about is religion and culture and and all of these world shaking things that are happening. Social justice, social justice, healing racism and all <laughs> yes, of that stuff. Yeah. Stuff that sounds pretty earnest. Yeah, it sounds pretty earnest. But um, anyway, she said, I'd like to do something funny about my community. And what she was really interested in was um, after doing a documentary called Me in the Mosque, which was ex exploring her own uh, feeling of being an outsider in her in her mosque uh, here in Toronto. Um, she was interested in exploring what it would be like if there was a, an imam who was actually born in North America, because at that time in both the U.S. and Canada, the imams who were in the mosques all through these countries were from elsewhere. And so she would, she thought how innovative it would be if we just did a comedy where we saw an educated, uh, Western-educated, um, Canadian-born imam leading a mosque, that that would be innovative. So that we thought was kind of funny. Hmm. So she brought that idea about the imam being educated here. Sure. And then we said, 
why don't we put that mosque in a church, <laughs> thus mm-hmm. fulfilling everything that we wanted to talk <laughs> about? And she loved the idea because on a number of levels, first of all, it put, on the show, it's a it's a shared space. It's a shared church space. Yeah. Slash mosque exactly. in, a, in a small Canadian town. That's right. And and so what's so so interesting about that is in a large center like Toronto, the Muslim community is as diverse as any community. So mm. people go to whatever mosque suits their particular brand of Islam. Mm-hmm. But if you're living in a, in a little town, which in this case happened to be Indian Head, Saskatchewan, which was renamed Mercy uh, by our writers. Um, in that case, all the Muslims in town, which would be, I don't know, we never did decide, there's probably 30 or 40 of them, all had to go into the one mosque. So mm-hmm. now you've got the fundamentalists, and you've got the more liberal people, you've got... Yasser Hamoudi, who's really only interested in Islam in terms of what it can do for his bottom line in his Um. construction company. (laughs) So you really get to see a broad range. So in other words, we don't just show Islam or any religious community as one thing. One homogenous thing. So it's not just a mashup of Muslim and Christian, in this case, uh, and Muslim and small town. It's a mashup of different kinds of Muslims in, in one show. And having, different kinds of Christians. Sure. Yeah. Having to cohabitate. Yeah. Plus you've got the, the big city urban guy who was a lawyer. Now he's an imam and here he is in a small town too. So you have that, that prejudice both ways. So, so we had exactly what we wanted. We had a whole ton of diverse people shoved together. And, and two of the most interesting characters uh, I always thought were the reverend who's running the church and who's having trouble filling the pews, um, something he, he uh, wails on about uh, on and on throughout the series. And then you've got this young imam who has no problem with all the Muslims because they're all coming to his mosque. But these two are both trying to figure out their religion um, together. They, they keep coming together and comparing notes, which is what we hope happens more in the world. And I think does happen more in the world, but unfortunately we just hear more about the other stuff, about the, the divisions between us. And so really through the voice of those two characters mixed with the diversity of their two communities, you really realize, I think as a viewer, I hope as a viewer, that we are more alike than we are different. Right. And do you have specific stories <laughs> of how those, uh, those six years of this show helped bring healing or understanding uh, to Canada? Yeah. Oh, we it's have, extraordinary. We have a lot of stories. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it, it was sold in, uh, I think, 100 countries as our last. We just sold like again. Like 106 countries the show is in. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So yeah. people keep taking it in other countries. And unlikely when it's sold in Israel, it sold in, uh, was it in Turkey? It's in Turkey. Yeah, it was in... Um, did anyone do a version, like a South African version, <laughs> where there were like Muslims in a church in a small town and... They've tried or something like that. They've tried. Right now there's one um, in development in France, Mm. uh, which is especially, I think, important timing given what's going on in in Europe right now. Oh, that's fantastic. But the interesting thing that we found out recently is how many scholarly studies are out. Two books have been written about it now. One by a young um, university guy who put out a book and he studied the show from beginning to end and its effect on people. The most interesting thing as of late, just in the last year, uh, I got a call out of the blue from CNN asking if we knew that the show had been used by the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where they took Little Mosque and paired it with friends. And then they did, I don't know how they did their study, but they um, used the show to study whether or not television could actually 
uh, change people's perceptions. Um, And so that study was published and uh, CNN did a little story about it and some other people too. But that was great just because we had nothing to do with that. That was somebody out there just taking the show and playing with it. And and it it, actually did change perceptions. You know, nothing against friends. I love that show. But but it actually, after they asked the questions afterwards, it had had a... uh, A measurable impact. A measurable impact. That's right. Yeah. That's fantastic because anytime you can put a human face on the other... Mm-hmm. Um, then that creates uh, healing and, and understanding. Yeah, there was a guy who who called. I remember who said, "I've never, I've never actually met a Muslim, but I have one in my house every Monday night." Oh. And that was people from the show. So that was pretty cool. Oh, that's fantastic. I kind of feel like you guys should just like drop the mic right now. Like you did it. You did six (laughs) years of a show that promoted racial and religious harmony and understanding your Baha'is. You had a a global impact. Just drop the mic. Walk away right now. It's (laughs) never going to get better than that. You you know, probably better than us. You're only as good as your last. That's right. Yes. So we know lots of people, but um, no, it's, it's interesting. We're out there pitching like mad. Um, yeah, we feel like Little Mosque gave us an opportunity to learn and make a lot of mistakes because Little Mosque is an okay show. You know, it's many episodes are quite funny. Some of them, I think, are not as funny. Um, but there's episodes anchored inside of that series that were really trying to talk about something mm-hmm. and other episodes that just weren't that important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the production, you know, it's a, you know what it's like. You're, the writers are writing and you're on the floor, direct, you know, getting everything put together. Um, and even while you're shooting it, you're thinking, oh, I wish this, I wish this could just be a little bit better. Um, sure. So I feel like in the reflection that has happened between when we finished Mosque and just in a very ongoing way and different things that we've been working on, um, that you're always trying to find that way to bring the voice of character through more authentically or, uh, or even represent different communities. We just, um, we just met a writer today about an Aboriginal comedy that we've been working on for years um, that please, you know, yeah, I think we finally God. found the guy. I think we found the right guy to help us navigate those. Oh, problems. fantastic. Best lunch um, in a month. Yeah, best lunch in a month. <laughs> oh, exactly. fantastic. Yeah, oh, except for good. yours. So you're at West Wind Pictures, you're you're developing a lot of other projects. Absolutely, yes. But before we go away from Mosque, I had a couple of other questions. <clears throat> One is, did you get feedback from Muslims in particular, um, uh, you know, about the positive impact that the show might have had? Yeah, we really did. And even in the earliest days when we were focus testing the series with CBC, um, before telling um, a focus group of uh, newcomers to Canada and second generation, so newcomers and their kids, so older Muslims and their um, adult age kids, um, they didn't tell them what they were going to view. And then we watched the two pilots of the series. Um, and across the board, a, nobody thought they were going to see anything other than a documentary or a news story. A hundred percent. Nobody thought they were going to see anything else. Um, and then when they did see it, um, the older uh, generation turned to the younger generation and said, is it good? Is it okay for us? Is it good? Is it funny? Um, so you realize, you know, humor is a subjective thing. It doesn't always come, come through culture. But the second generation um, uh, immigrant community uh, really saw it as something that would have a positive impact on them just by just by simply depicting Muslims as human hmm. um, and as diverse instead of all painted with the same brush, which 
Um, unfortunately, the media hasn't been that good at showing diverse sure. images of Islam, right? Yeah, I think there's a real lesson in it because I think the only pushback we did get was a little bit sort of from the far right. Uh, but from the Muslim community, um, anything that we heard was positive. There was some very secular people from the Muslim community who said things like, well, not all Muslims are religious, you know. We thought it was kind of a strange... Yeah, we're like, (laughs) well, this one has, this show actually has mosque in the title. So that's the community we're focusing on. And then I think for a while there was sort of a, there were whisperings that we were hearing about some fatwa being put out on me and... um, and we just my and my dad was actually worried about my safety at the time. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, but at the end of the day, it was like if if there's going to be some. F- and it was before the show launched. It was based on press being um, generated through the Times. There was a mm. reporter who came up and and spent some time with us on, uh, from the New York Times and wrote an article before the show even launched. Um, and so I think there was this idea because there were, had been so many negative depictions of Muhammad. And things like that. That right. I think there was an assumption made that this was going to be something that Mocking made Muslims, fun of, yeah. made mm-hmm. fun of Islam, mm-hmm. even worse. You know, um, so in our room, we paid a lot of attention in the writing room on focusing on you know what is the source of comedy, what is sacred, you know, let's all talk about what's sacred um, and what's dogma. Like, what can we make equal opportunity fun of, and what is untouchable? Right. Um, and so in that way, I think because we were very um, proactive about taking that approach i think it created a bit of a safety for the show itself so we all knew you know with comedy you want to get close to the line but with a muslim comedy you definitely don't want to cross the line so you took out the singing and dancing muhammad that was in the uh, we did pre-show yeah. <laughs> yeah. i think there was actually a, a scene that we did we did pull that was uh drafted from one of the writers in the first episode where over a shoulder Without showing it, somebody was doing, you know how you used to rug hook back in the 70s or mm-hmm, 60s or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, that somebody was, it was said in the script that somebody was doing a, a rug hooking, you know, like making a rug, the depiction of Muhammad. And we're like, that's no. Out of innocence. Out the of character it. was a character that didn't know it. Wasn't yeah. Okay. So oh, it was coming right. through right. character, so but it's even so, like, sure, you know. Sure. But that's the nice thing because it's Baha'is because we, we absolutely 100% believe that Muhammad was a messenger of God. It was wonderful to to say to our writers, suspend any disbelief that you may have, because most of the writers that we're talking to are usually um, young, hip atheists. Mm-hmm. But um, we said, suspend that and assume it's all true, mm-hmm. because we believe it's all true. And so that's, that's what, uh, like Mary was saying, this sacred center that was established for both Christianity and for Islam was untouchable. These are people of faith. At whatever level they're at, these are people of faith, and that's what we're going to see on TV now. I mean, frankly, the, the greatest challenge, I would say, would be in comedy. You know, you kick up. You kick up to the group that you think can take it, I guess. Um, at least that's what we were learning. Mm. And so our writers wanted to kick up at Christianity because they thought, well, Christianity is used to being made fun of. They can be made fun of. And, uh, and so there are times where I think we, we play with the, we, we play with some stereotypes and sort of use them on the head of the stereotype, but um, it's tough waters to navigate when you're working with, you know, a room of, of 10 or more writers and they're writing away and people come from either very secular approach or just, well, it's funny, you know, um, but we just had great writers on the show in general. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think the consultation that was created 
inside the room really created. So it sounds like you brought some uh, a high perspective to the creative process as well. Absolutely, like yeah. The spirit of consultation and t- uh, treating the, the, the prophets, the messengers, the manifestations with a with a certain sacredness and... Uh, well, we, we, what was we that tried. like? So you were running a Baha'i business. <laughs> we were way. very open about it, you know, yeah. and the writers all put up with us. <laughs> it wasn't easy, honestly. I mean, it no. really wasn't easy. Um, you know, Rain, in our business, consultation doesn't, it's not, it's not always identified as a as tool a that people know how to use. Sure. Right? It's they like consultation. It things down or that consultation them. is sort of knowing something and telling other people how to do it. Mm-hmm. You think of the word consultant. show business is a very hierarchical business. Yeah. yeah. So in opening that door up, there were times I think that people thought we were weak. Like mm-hmm. We didn't know what the decision was. So we weren't going to tell them what the decision was. We wanted them to help us with the decision. So I think sometimes it was seen as weakness. But over years, thank goodness we had enough years to show, no, we were really just trying to implement some new way of decision making. Mm. Um, and I think also a big challenge is just the way uh, people in the industry paint each other. So what writers think of actors, what actors think of writer, what the, you know, um, and trying to work inside of the Canadian system to say, it doesn't have to be that way. Hmm. You know, um, let's hear from the, the actors, what they, who that, they think their character is, you know. That caused quite a difficulty when we said to the writers, we'd like to bring the actors in who now know their characters pretty well and, and get their feedback on some things. And, that, that uh, was a tough one. That didn't go that well. That was a tough one. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. very We adjourned that meeting halfway through. We said, this was good. I think yeah. we're done. Oh, nice. <laughs> now, did you get, now, obviously, uh, Baha'is in Iran, especially, but some other countries, uh, undergo and have undergone tremendous persecution at the hands of <clears throat> Muslim clergymen and theocracy. Um was there any backlash from the Baha'is about the portrayal of Muslims or did you get any negative vibes? No. Yeah. I mean, we have a woman in our community, the best woman on the planet. Her name is Akhtaz and she's 90 and she's our... She's literally the best woman on the planet. She's literally the best woman <laughs> on the planet. In our and, she, and she's in our community. You know, and she we got lucky. a t-shirt, like best woman in the, <laughs> or, or a mug. Best 90-year-old. But she, I remember... Um, I remember being at a gathering and Octaz came up to us and she said, Mary, the show, the show that you're making, Little Mosque on the Prairie, we said, yes. And she said, it's very good, but could you just make it a little bit better, a little bit funnier? <laughs> we're like, oh. <laughs> we're like, what a great idea. That's a good idea. We're going to do that. You know, that's a great note. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. love her. Um, but no, but there, no, there was no other. Um, I think the Baha'is were just delighted, right? Every time. We've been in any kind of gathering because they know that overall the show has had a positive mm-hmm. effect. So the Baha'is are just over the moon that um, that we as a community have been able to, you know, put our oar in and do one good thing here. But it was interesting at the very beginning. It was really as things were beginning to heat up in Iran. <clears throat> the persecution was heating up and we had been in development with CBC for two years on this show. And... Um, and as things were getting more difficult at that point, this was the late 90s, um, for the Baha'is in Iran, Clark and I really consulted about, do we proceed? Um, is it the best thing right now for Baha'is to be making a Muslim comedy? What if it doesn't go well? Mm. Is that dangerous? It's risky. Yeah. It's risky. And so we pulled together a group of um, people we trusted and consulted with them um, about 
you know, is this something we should do? We even went so far as to decide what production company we would give the show to um, here in Toronto in case we decided through the consultation that it wouldn't be the best thing to proceed. Mm. And from that consultation, um, the unanimous sort of outcome was not only should we make the show, but we must make the show. Mm. Um, And then we, in consultation with some of the institutions, decided not to make a big deal out of the fact that we were Baha'is. Mm. Um, to just let it launch. In fact, you'll see on the opening credit sequence, there's a soul created by credit, and that's Zarka Nawaz. We just said um, her name should be the name that represents nice. the show. Um, and we launched like that and kept it like that through the seasons. And it really wasn't until the Association for Baha'i Studies Conference in Lahala, like a few years after we started making the show, or maybe two years. Lahala? In San La Jolla. Diego. La Jolla. Oh, now that was, did you that say Lahala? Because I, I, well, I don't know no, what Lahala is. No, it sounds la, like it's, it's in Nigeria. It's Lajala. Lajala. <laughs> this is, this is, this how is our, our standing joke. joke. That so that's was, why I said That's it. what I said. So where is Lahala? California. La Jolla. La Jolla. They got a Hortons down there? No, I knew. I knew it, Rain. I knew you would take offense. Okay, sorry. Sorry, inside joke. I can't let that slide. I'm sorry. Oh, dear. Anyway, so it was then, probably two or three years after we started producing the show, that we sort of did our Baha'i coming out party. So some people knew we were doing it, but for the most part, the community didn't know it was a Baha'i thing. So you guys, you're married. How long have you been married? Since 2001. (laughs) 16 years. We got married uh, just after... uh, Just after 9-11. Wow. October 6th. That's a, yeah. that's an interesting marker to, to mm-hmm. use to uh, <laughs> yeah. think about. We're just glad our parents came to the wedding. We're glad they got on an airplane. Yeah. I know it's a terrible marker, but. Um, all right. So, and what's, what's, and, and you, you guys have tons of kids. It's a, it's literally a Brady Bunch situation. It here. is. You yeah. both had kids from previous marriages yeah. and then you had a bunch of kids together. Just so, two kids together. Just two kids counts. together. We're a blended family. Two's a, two's, yeah. two's a bunch. So. Two in Vancouver. Three in Boston, one in North Carolina, and two at home. How do you keep track of all of them? That's a that's as much as we, we, we bundle them. them. They yeah. just have numbers. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. That's fantastic. But what's so fascinating is um, you uh, you work together. You're married and creative, and and work together side by side. What's that like? Is it that? Do you drive each other crazy? How how do you how do you how do you do that? I don't know exactly how it works, but it works really, really well. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I originate things, Clark um, edits them. Sometimes he originates things, I edit them. Um, Depending on what show we're working on, um, we sort of, because in Canada, everything, everything happens inside of a production company. Like you do everything from pitch the idea to finance it and the whole bit. So sometimes he'll take the lead on financing while I do the creative or vice versa. Hmm. Um, and those things kind of happen organically. I don't think we often say. It's it's extraordinary, you know, really. Uh, like, it's the best thing. We were just talking about it the other night. Because it's not that we don't disagree sometimes. We do. I get very attached. To I disagree ideas. with Clark most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, uh, we consult on literally everything. And, and in the creative process, it's fantastic because... Each of us just, I think, really does bring something different than the other person. It's very complimentary. And and then because it's a tough industry. I mean, we've had lots and lots of, of downs in it, you know, where you, you go from these 
huge tests <laughs> or triumphs and then and then you go into the valley after that but we're there to support each other and that's huge i don't know how people do it alone in this industry i don't know how you do it it's it's really a tough industry to be in because uh there's a lot of egos uh involved and well i mean just speaking for myself i really don't do it alone i mean first of all i have my you've my incredible wife holiday <laughs> who consults with me about everything but i really you know, I think the one of the things about consultation, uh, I haven't deepened very much on it, but one of the things I'm sure about consultation is it doesn't just mean it's for committees. No. It's for one's life that mm-hmm. you you can live actually a fuller, richer, greater individual life in consultation with others. And I don't make a single decision in my life without running it by many of my trusted friends, Baha'is and non-Baha'is and family members and say, I'm thinking about this. Mm -hmm. What do you think? And so um, I try and live in active consultation on everything I do. So I'm not really going it alone. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, for us, you know, we just, it just happened even today where we had to do this uh, pitch about this new comedy show that we're trying to get going. And, And again, we, we're kind of, very aware of where the other person is in the pitch. And when we start to falter, if I start to falter, Mary's right there Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So, so it really works well. And And it's uh, a lot of fun. I think it's, um, I think we're both creative and both um, respectful of each other's work. And so there's times I'll just be quiet, as quiet as I can be, because I'm just so curious where he's going to go with something. (laughs) Um, And it's, and it's so often in such a beautiful direction. Um, and so it's just then coming in to help shape something else that a complemented instead of re mm. recreating. So I wouldn't say that it's group think at all. You know, when I say sometimes things uh, originate with Clark or they originate with me, um, that that's just the origination point. By mm-hmm. the time it reaches any point near fruition, it has so much of each other all over it that it's hard to say or even remember where it started. Well, and astonishingly, um, very often one of us will say something and it was already in the other person's head today yeah, i said and then the alien girl arrives on the planet and where does she arrive on a native reserve in saskatchewan and we hadn't even talked about that beforehand i made it up on the spot because it seemed like the right thing and afterwards we were in the elevator and she says that's exactly what i was thinking that was perfect oh that's fantastic because yeah. <laughs> it would it would have sucked if she was like why did you say that yeah, yeah. crazy she needs to arrive in <laughs> chicago <laughs> yeah uh that's that's fantastic so you know, a lot of friends and relatives ask me, you know, what do, what do producers do? And when I first got to L.A., I didn't really understand what producers did. And I remember asking someone in, in showbiz and they said, well, you know, an actor acts and a writer writes and a director directs and producers do everything else. And I think that that's a really great summation because it was it's a it's an occupation that uh, I really admire producers and all the hats that you have to wear because you have to be creative with actors and writers and you have to be you know business people with the upper muckety mucks the studios and the networks and right. what have you and you've got to keep careful track of your of your finances and you're in, you're the one in charge of the budgets you've got to do hirings you've got to be a good boss and um, there's it, it just runs the 
runs the gamut. But in all of those different hats that you wear, there's a kind of creativity that's involved. So what, what else can you tell people about being a producer? What was that T-shirt? You- yeah, there's a wonderful T-shirt that you can get in it. On it, it's written, it says, I, uh, I wrote executive producer on this T-shirt because there wasn't room for a frickin' miracle worker. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so it's interesting because in, in Canada, it's even a little bit different than in the States. So in Canada, you also can originate your own work. Mm-hmm. So in our case, we'll often originate the creative. Um, so th- at that point, then you're thinking up the idea, you're... Uh, figuring out how it works, maybe shooting a little demo so that you can test the material yourself. Then you pitch it to a broadcaster and you get, you get uh, some interest from a broadcaster. And then you, and then you go through all of the other steps that you were just mentioning from, well, how does it work? How much is it going to cost? How many, how many hours can we work a kid? Um, What are the union rules? Does this have to be a union show? And you begin to do everything from budget to production financing to, uh, hiring your directors or deciding, are we going to write it ourselves? Are we going to hire a writer? Am I going to direct it? Are you going to direct? You know, it's, it's everything. So in Canada, because you can originate your own creative, produce it and actually own it. Mm-hmm. Um, you are literally doing everything from originating creative works. So you get to wear all the actual creative hats, whether you're going to write or direct, um, right down to the business financing and closing your finance gaps with your, with your bank or your grants or whatever. Um, so it is everything, including if you want to distribute your own product, which we did with Mosque, we actually uh, did all the deals with those international broadcasters and signed the bottom lines directly. We didn't use a, uh, a distributor. So we had all the middlemen out of the way, um, which was so interesting with that show because mostly people weren't buying the show just for the comedy they were buying it to try to address an issue that they were having in the country, mm. you know, which was mm-hmm. buying it. So, so producers in Canada do absolutely everything. I mean, I can't think of anything. Yeah. As compared to Hollywood, where usually a studio will at a certain point, just pick up the ball and run with it. And they've mm-hmm. got the machine to do it, which actually sounds wonderful. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you get paid for what you do rather than yeah. investing your own fees back in. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what it means to be a producer, but especially what it means to be a Baha'i producer. What does that involve? Being a Baha'i producer involves, you know, I always say we talk a lot about how do we recreate, how do we reinvent an industry that is built on a very hierarchical uh, model? And how do we engage in creative conversations um, even the hierarchy that happens on a set between the director and a producer, a director and the actors, to be able to in real time um, pause and consult about what might be the better idea. Um, where I think sometimes on a set, uh, the director's vision can be an amazing vision, but of course, consultation, even the social sciences prove that if the four of us in this room right now are all quite brilliant, but Rain, you're the most brilliant person in the room, or um, that if we consult together and come to and, and explore a subject matter together, that the decision that comes through that consultation will be better than even the best thinker in the room. And so when you're working in an industry, which is built on a very hierarchical um, model, going in and trying to reinvent those systems and those conversations to move towards something that's more collaborative, that involves selflessness, that brings into being humility, um, in a in a very ego centric ego driven industry, it's it's fraught with challenges. I mean, we've had so many 
our own feelings have been hurt so much mm. um, as we've been producing because um, people either take it as weakness or they look at generosity and they take it as, you know, stupidity to be taken advantage of, gullibility. Um, and so it feels like in, or, or you actually can tweak a person's, um, you can actually test people accidentally by being too generous. Um, and so you offer something, but then they want more, even though what you've offered is more than, you know. Right. So, so having strong boundaries at the same time as hugely, trying to be generous is, can be tricky. It is a delicate balance. And so what, what I always think now is, you know, um, to meet people where they are, to get to know people, and then to begin to engage in a process starting from where you're, you are in your particular production. Um, so, for example, in the last show that we produced, the art show, about 50% of the people on set were Baha'is. Um, and and what, that, is, what is this art show? The art show is a show that we just finished for CBC Kids. Um, it's 43 episodes of little five-minute pieces mm -hmm. where we meet a kid, get to know them a little bit. They're all very culturally diverse kids. Um, we see them inspired by something, sometimes nature, sometimes the fine arts. And then they go and make something. Um, so it's this, they're beautiful. We've shot them in a really epic sort of cinematic way. Mm. And we take kids art really seriously. So it's, I think it's one of the few shows, if I can't think of another one actually, that just meets kids where they are. And we let them talk about art and how, what inspires them. And like, we're right in their souls, you know? Oh, that's gorgeous. It's really neat. And I, you know, you guys have done some silly reality shows from your production company. But I noticed that uh, when I speak to you about projects, you're always striving to do projects that really make a difference, that really mean something. So how does it, what is it like being a Baha'i producer striving to tell stories that are a service to the world around us? Well, it's interesting because I think there's all these different genres that you can express yourself through. You know, there's motion pictures and there's documentaries and there's plays and there's digital media. Digital media. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for us, I think we keep looking for stories that, that move our hearts that we hope will move other hearts. And then we pick the, we don't worry about, for example, just doing reality shows. You know, we aren't a company that's decided just to do that or a company that's just doing comedies. We want to do this documentary because that's that that moves our hearts. And we want to do this half hour comedy because we think it can actually make a difference in the world. So we're kind of all over the place, which is a little confusing for broadcasters because they're never they can't label us. Right. Um, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. They're like, oh, you're doing a kid's oh, show now. That's, that's very cool. similar to Soul Pancake and trying to have an emission-driven yeah, company. Very much. Yeah, that's a company exactly that stands for something and is yeah. trying to move the ball down the field mm -hmm. in a certain way. Whereas there's other companies that they just want to sell. They don't care what it is. They, they just want to sell shows, get them on the air. And uh, it, it doesn't matter if it's Drunk Housewives or, or what have you. We've been approached yeah. to do some shows. Say, wait a minute, Drunk Housewives? <laughs> Is okay. that, has that Could we put a spin on that? Hmm. Sober housewives. Housewives drunk on the love of God. <laughs> That'll do it. Okay. We can sell that. No, it's interesting. The wine we, of astonishment. <laughs> that's actually, I'm going to come up with something right now and it's going to be documented. Um, we've actually been handed shows before um, by broadcasters that we've said no to. Or we've been asked to develop shows that really had like, an ability to go into a great heart place, um, reality shows that could be really positive. 
Um, but after developing them, the broadcaster wanted to take it. This happened to us three times. The broadcaster wanted to take it in a different direction, which was mm. incredibly negative. Mm. Um, so we just said no. Yeah. That's hard to do. That is that those are hard to do, especially when your hallways are kind of vacant and your receptionist is sleeping at the front. Yeah, because yeah, things you know, are a little slow. <laughs> things are a like, little slow. It's like oh. like if you look at reality shows, I think that <laughs> what Baha'u'llah has uh, introduced into the world are all these opportunities and in every one of them there's an opportunity like in reality. But the the challenge is to achieve authenticity. Mm. something authentic and it drives me crazy some of the shows you know in order to heighten the drama they'll take the smallest thing some guy trips coming in the door and that becomes then they go to the talking head of the guy like i couldn't believe it when carl tripped at the door what an idiot (laughs) that's exactly they uh, they, they go from there so let's switch gears a little bit um how did you guys become baha'is well, I became a Baha'i. I was sort of living, uh, I guess the way I often put it, and I hope it's the right way to put it, but I was sort of, I believed that the Canadian beer commercials were right. Mm. That this was uh, how you could be happy was you're out playing hockey and going for beer with the boys afterwards. And and all, a lot of this stuff that goes along with that. And and because I've got wonderful parents, I think, who um, who gave me a grounding in faith, even though I had kind of left it. I, I really give them a lot of credit for the fact that I felt an emptiness after not too long as a young man in in just kind of making that my uh, lifestyle. And then my sister-in-law at the time had become a Baha'i in Switzerland. I'd never heard of it. And I really gave her a tough Baha'i time. Baha'i faith or Switzerland? No, I, <laughs> I'd heard of Switzerland. But uh, yeah, so, so anyways, I gave her a tough time for about three years. Mm-hmm. And she just kept kind of shooting me these little quotes and so on and so on and asking me to at least consider them. And and after a while, you know, I really realized that there's nothing behind that door of the Canadian beer commercial. Mm-hmm. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead, I kind of stepped outside into this amazing new thing when I finally recognized that something wonderful had happened in the world. And uh, it was extraordinary. It, it literally turned my life around overnight. I was one of those those guys. Um, so your friends must, what did they think of this transformation? My friends were very confused. Yeah. I had one, one very, day you're having Molson's, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, and watching the Maple Leafs. And then, uh, <laughs> Actually, it's a Montreal Canadiens, but uh, okay. the Leafs I'm okay with. Yeah, I remember a, a good friend of mine came over to my backyard deck and he sat down and he says, okay, what is going on? Tell me all about this. And although I think he was uh, he was attracted after I explained it to him, he's always been a, a supporter ever since. You know, I think he has a high opinion of the faith. So I, I really I really did throw a lot of people for a loop in, in my family because when you discover something so wonderful, you tend to be a little uh, overly overt about it. Zealous. <laughs> Zealous, I guess, <laughs> is the word, uh, which I think kind of knocked uh, some of my family members uh, back a few steps. But since then, I think that they've seen that it's really made a difference, not even so much for me, but for uh, my kids. Hmm. Because so many people are having such difficulties with their kids in terms of finding purpose for them mm-hmm. and finding a direction in life. And they look at our eight kids between us and people are amazed. Like, what, how did this happen? 
And of course, they think it's because we're such wonderful parents. Well, I don't know where we are on the parents. (laughs) Yeah, fairly (laughs) mediocre. These kids have been raised with these extraordinary holy words and and the mystical power embedded in them. Mm. And it's reflected in their lives. And and they're all better better human beings than we are, you know? I think they understand that service is the is the centerpiece that it's not about them that it removes it removes yourself from the occasion you know the whole equation Mm -hmm. so how did you become a behind mary (laughs) so for me it was a completely different story because i found the faith when i was young in 1982 i was a kid still and um and i was always drawn to the mystical i was raised catholic and my church um the priest didn't follow vatican ii when they were supposed to turn around and stop speaking in Latin. Um, And so he continued to face the altar, and I loved it. I loved the ringing of the bells and the incense and the the sound. Exactly. I loved it all. And um, was that sacrilegious? Did I just? No, no, that was exactly what it was. That's that's comedy. That's on. I mean, yeah, I think it's good. (laughs) Anyway, so. When the and, and in my catechism class, I was really curious kid. So I remember one um, one catechism class when I was in first or second grade when the nun was talking about Noah's Ark. And I remember it so clearly, like I was sitting in my chair, looking out the window, it was raining. And she was telling the story of Noah's Ark. And uh, and when she was done, I raised my hand and asked, is Noah's Ark a story or is it is it real or is it a story that's supposed to teach us something? And she quite calmly, with a smile on her face, walked down the aisle of chairs, took me by the arm, walked me across the street, actually, to the priest's office and had Father Furman answer the question for her. And he basically said, Mary, my job is I thought you were going to say she walked you across the street to the Baha'i Center. (laughs) (laughs) Be free. You belong over here. Sorting. She sorted me right in that room. But, um, But the priest really said to me, it's my job to read the Bible and tell you the stories and tell you what they mean. It's basically not your job to ask questions. And I mean, I was really a little kid, but that really stuck with me. And so as I got older, I started going everywhere. I was raised in um, in the town of Prince in Chanhassen, Minnesota. And I um, started going into Minneapolis to every synagogue, temple, whatever I could find. I had a notebook. I was trying to figure out you know, how to answer this question that I asked my priest as well about how is it possible that there's all of these other religions, but we're the only ones that are saved. Mm. And really the clincher for me that set me off on a, on a certain earnest was when I asked my priest, I mean, I, I was always joking with him, but I, I would say, um, finally it came down to, okay, so here's the scenario. There's a guy in Africa wandering around searching for God. He's searching for for God in the most profound way. He needs to find God. But nobody ever comes and teaches him about Jesus Christ, what happens to him. And he just said, like, it was like he died. He said, I'm very sorry. And that was really the thing. Meaning, I'm very sorry, he's going to hell. He's He's going going to to hell. hell. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it set me off on this intense search. And I wish I had kept the book because I really talked to clergy I talked to congregants and I did my own work at libraries to say, what are the, and I, how old are you doing this? At this point I was like 14. Okay. So this continued through your childhood. All through my childhood. I remember buying the Bhagavad Gita at a garage sale Mm -hmm. and reading it and not knowing what it meant, but being really interested. And I remember the look on my mom's face when she 
noticed I had the Bhagavad Gita because she didn't know what it was either. But um, but yes, I was very spiritually curious. Mm. Um, and I didn't find the faith through all that. It ended up that I went to high school with the Baha'i, the other creative writer in my class. He showed up during the revolution uh, in 1979. I had really, I was always the kid, you know, doing the creative writing. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, Masood arrives in his stories. Like, I don't know where he's getting his material, but he's got amazing stories. Um, and it wasn't until I became a Baha'i after high school and went to a Holy Day celebration in Minneapolis where I ran into Masood and realized he's a Baha'i. That's, mm. He was getting, his material was all about getting out over the mountains. It was all about their uh, escape from Iran. So, um, but for me, it, it was just somebody said the word literally, somebody said the word Baha'u'llah to me. It was, in fact, it was my ex-husband um, who's my spiritual father, you know, who said, um, as we were getting to know each other, he said, I'm a Baha'i. That means that I believe in Baha'u'llah. Um, that's something you need to know about me. And I physically felt something move in me. It was like, and then I just mm. began to investigate completely, mm. um, you know, that independent investigation of the truth. That's beautiful. So, so where, um, what do you struggle with as Baha'is these days? What's your, what's the point of your greatest spiritual test? And it may be different for the both of you. Man, um, I struggle with patience. I, I'm a very impatient person. Um, and I really want to be a patient person. Uh, so I spiritually struggle with patience. I, I am um, upset by what's going on in the world. And I see my little sphere of influence being in how I parent and how I grandparent and what I'm, how I'm telling stories. Those are my, and, and being a, a good wife and a good daughter and all those kinds of things. But patience in all of those realms is something I've always, I mean, patiently patient, I guess, is the way I would describe it. So um, I feel like, you know, we've, we've got our hands on something that's powerful in our kids, in educating our kids mm. um, to be better than, our, than ourselves. Um, I feel like I can't do enough in that realm of, in that realm of service. Um, I feel impatiently patient, impatient around patiently, impatiently patient <laughs> um, around trying to influence the media. Um, and that's a, a struggle every single day. How do we uh, tell these stories to a broad audience? I get, and I understand all the one-to-one -one, uh, time that we spend with friends and, but I just want to shout it from the mountaintops. Mm. And I find um, having anything between me and somebody who's able to say no to me, <laughs> I'm very impatient about that. Mm. So I think patience has always been my most difficult. Well, in terms of influencing the media, I mean, it's so monolithic. I remember Greg Daniels, who's the creator of the American Office TV show, he said, you know, I see comedy as this giant ocean liner and it said if we can if we can if we can just steer it by one degree in the right direction then it will be headed a little bit more in the right direction mm -hmm. and we'll have done our role and i think yeah. the office did that it steered comedy <clears throat> in one degree in the right direction both yeah. the bbc version and the american version and a lot of so many comedies have been influenced by it since in in a good way um but uh, so maybe you've already done that a little bit by Little Mosque and some of the other projects. What about you, Clark? I think uh, <clears throat> I'm more mercurial, if that's the word, than my wife. 
thank goodness that she's uh, more steady than I am. So I think what I struggle with sometimes is just trust, trust in providence. Um, you know, I believe 100% and absolutely, and I have that uh, to rely on. But nevertheless, I do, when things aren't going well, particularly in our business sometimes, you know, and it takes so long for something to finally bear fruit yeah. that I find myself um, at times on my knees just praying, please, because <laughs> it <laughs> need to take this long. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think I think that uh, sometimes I struggle with that. Mm-hmm. That is trust. That's a, that's that's trust. a tough one. A are one. there any uh, books that you're reading right now that are turning you on? <clears throat> Do you know a book I really love? <clears throat> and it'd be a dream to produce it someday, is um, Salman Rushdie's Haroon in the Sea of Stories. Do you oh, know this book? I don't. Um, when Salman Rushdie was in exile after, you know, his fatwa was put on him yeah. and, and uh, you had to go into hiding. That's a dream to, to him. No, it was actually a university class that introduced me to this book. And I love it. It's, um, it's really the story of today. Um, it's a story that Salman Rushdie wrote while he was in exile in, in, in uh, London um, for his son who he was separated from. And it's a, it's a very subversive piece because he's writing a, a story for his child. But it's really about what is the origin of story and how do waters of story, how do the, the story streams become polluted? And how do we know, you know, um, he talks about the sadness that's belching out of the the um, sad factories, sad factories, um, which is the news today. Right. Um, it's such a beautiful story that speaks directly to our times, mm-hmm. um, even so much as like fake news or people who are addicted to the news or people who become completely distracted by what's going on in the world to the point where they can't contribute to the world in an ongoing way. Mm. Um, so that story I am completely in love with. Hmm. What about you, Clark? Any anything? Well, um, we have this one. This and um, the high r- stuff you're reading. That um, yeah, yeah. We have this routine at night where we read to the kids uh, as they're going to bed for about half an hour. And right now, we've been reading something that's actually uh, should be over their heads, but they're really fascinated by it. And it's called One God, Three Wives, Five Religions. That's about Abraham. It's about Abraham. Yeah, I read that book. Yeah, it's yeah. terrific. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things that happened to me when I became a Baha'i. I thought I'd left my Christianity behind, but all of a sudden I became really, really interested and in love again with the Christ story and Christianity. And so it's fascinating to go back and to understand more about this uh, extraordinary figure, this Abraham, mm-hmm. and then to realize that Ishmael was the one that he nearly sacrificed mm-hmm. uh, rather than Isaac and, and, and why Baha'u'llah affirmed that mm-hmm. because Muhammad said it as well. And, uh, it's just it's it's wonderful reading and it uh, affirms for the children in another way the concept of progressive revelation so that they understand uh, about another messenger of God and the impact that he had. I found it so powerful going to Jerusalem and seeing the Dome of the Rock, which is the rock that the dome <laughs> is around, is the rock supposedly where Abraham was. Right going to sacrifice his son and mm-hmm. that it's right there in the center of Jerusalem and that, you know, Judaism, the, the, 
the the wailing wall is right there which is the wall of the of the temple of david of course and, and there's the dome of the rock and then the church of the holy sepulcher is literally you could throw a football and hit it it's that close <laughs> and all those world religions really center around that rock which was abraham's rock it's yeah. amazing and it's extraordinary that we're fighting about it mm-hmm. it's it's unbelievable that we're fighting about it when it's all right in front of us one rock <laughs> all these religions gathered around it arguing when it's so obvious that it's actually one religion. Mm. Are there any uh, Baha'i quotes that are your favorites that bring you the most uh, inspiration and guidance or ones that you've been pondering, especially these days? A quote I really love that, and and it's a prayer that I say every day and that I'm trying to help the kids memorize as well. Um, It talks about how uh, it says, oh my God, oh my God. Thou seest me in my lowliness and weakness, occupied with the greatest undertaking, determined to raise thy word among the people, the masses, and to spread thy teachings among thy people. And this is the part I love. It says, how can I succeed unless thou assist me with the breath of the Holy Spirit? Help me to triumph by the hosts of thy glorious kingdom and shower upon me thy confirmations which alone can change a gnat into an eagle. I mean, imagine mm. a drop of water into rivers and seas and an atom into lights and suns. And then it goes on. It's just this beautiful prayer for assistance where you realize, you know, you take one step and with confirmation, if you take the one step, it, it can be confirmed and you mm. can be that transformed. It can change in that into an, we can be completely mm-hmm. transformed in a moment those early heroes of the faith were absolutely gnats extraordinary that were martha root is yeah. just a gnat that completely transformed into an eagle yeah, yeah. so i great. love that i really lean on that uh as a tool not just as something sort of nice to say so for it's, people it's who tool. really like magic like harry potter like do that, it read it do it this is real magic it's, turning it's real gnats magic. into eagles <laughs> it is and water into rivers and seas <laughs> what about you clark well, yeah, like many Baha'is, um, I have struggled at times with my obligatory prayer. Um, and, you know, you get to the end of the day and you think, oh, I forgot it. And then you realize, thank goodness there's a makeup prayer. Yep. And, and then you kind of lose track of how many makeups you need to do. So a <laughs> um, wonderful friend of ours, CMI Carreri, uh, said, you know, I, that everything changed for me when I got up really early, said my long obligatory prayer said my uh, 95 labhas and and even maybe a tablet vomit or something if you get up early enough so i started to do that and i don't do it every morning but i'm doing pretty well so i get up before uh before the kids are up and say that long obligatory prayer and and i love that long obligatory prayer because when you finally get it into your memory so you don't need to hold the book up in front of you while you're kneeling and <laughs> doing all the things you need to do uh it's extraordinary as you say those words and you think these words actually came out of the mouth of a manifestation of god and now i'm saying them mm. and i love the part it sounds funny maybe but i love the part where it says thou seest this wretched creature knocking at the door of thy grace and somehow, just in saying that, it's a great release, you know, mm-hmm. because because you know that you are. It's funny, in the, in the previous podcast, I actually brought up that line because the next line, and this evanescent soul, 
And I think it's such a nice balance between we are both a wretched creature and we're an evanescent soul. We're both of these things. Mm -hmm. And can we live, we're both gnats and eagles really at the same time. Can we live in that um, dichotomy? Yeah. That's it. I I love when he gets up early and says his obligatory prayer because he arrives with coffee afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) so you continue to urge him him, Clark it's so important for your soul that you get up and say your obligatory prayer early uh, for your spiritual transformation and just if you could do the Splenda instead of the NutraSweet that would be be great totally well uh, Mary and Clark thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this has been a scintillating conversation. And if people want to learn more about West Wind and what you guys are up to, because you've got all kinds of projects percolating, where can they find out that information? Uh, there's a website, www.westwindpictures.com. Okay. And we did a documentary about the Baha'i faith, and you can find uh, more information about that documentary. We're really happy with it. It turned out really well. So yes, this was one of my questions I didn't yeah. get to. I'm seeing it right here. You did a documentary about the Baha'i faith. So I'm, I'm signing off, but this is maybe the most Im- important thing. And it ran on the CBC? It ran on uh, Vision Television, which is another network here in Canada. Okay. But you can find it on, you can find segments of it on a website called thebaha'is.ca. Um, and you can also download it from Nine Star, and it's available DVD at BDS at the Baha'i Distribution Service. And it's called The Baha'is. The Baha'is. And it's a one-hour documentary about the Baha'i faith. Yeah, I think it's a one-hour documentary that sort of tries to put an ocean in a teacup. It's forty-five minutes. Talks about what is the faith, and also um, you get to meet some people who are Baha'is actually trying to implement its teachings all across Canada. Oh, that's fantastic! Uh, I can't wait to see that. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ray. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night. <laughs>